welcome back to Deep Focus. This is Quaid with my co-host, Nick. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Nice. Anyways, uh, how has it been with you this past week? How is Nick's life now no longer working? Um, is it productive? Weirdly br- busy. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's been pretty productive, but uh, I feel like I've been getting my life in order. And then now I've finally just like sat down and I'm like, okay, now it can work. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Very cool. But, yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. So this week we watched uh, Bottle Rocket by Wes Anderson. Yes. Uh, Wes 1996. First one. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so have you seen uh, Wes Anderson's full filmography? I think I'm missing maybe one movie, but otherwise, okay. uh, yeah, I think I have seen it all. Okay. Um. Let's see. I think I'm missing one or two as well. But well, we can check it out here. Uh, but yeah, Bottle Rocket was his first movie, which is very mm-hmm. interesting. Also, of course, known for if people don't know who Wes Anderson is, of course, Grand Budapest Hotel, Moonrise Kingdom. He's really taken off. He's gotten mainstream in a sense. Moonrise yeah. Kingdom sort of took him mainstream. I guess you could say maybe Fantastic Mr. Fox already did that, but I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I, my first film of his was actually the Darjeeling Limited. Um, I don't know if you saw that one. But... That's the one I think I'm missing. Oh, really? Okay. It was really yeah. good. But um, I think the Royal Tenenbaums is my favorite film of his. Um, and then Bottle Rocket's a close second. It's very cool. I don't know. I haven't really thought about my favorite of his. The Royal Tenenbaums is great. Mm-hmm. Um. I really do like Fantastic Mr. Fox. I am a fan of the Grand Budapest Hotel because I sort of feel like that's um, his sort of style reaching its apex. Um, sure. Let's see. The one that I like, I haven't seen Rushmore and I haven't seen Darjeeling Limited. I think those are the two I haven't seen. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen The Life Aquatic. And I think that's it's it. good. It's good. Yeah. Um, so, actually, before we... Um, obviously spoilers guys um you know and if we uh we're gonna talk without any um consideration for anyone who hasn't seen the film so um go see it (laughs) yeah yeah um it's a it's up to stream like everywhere so yeah um so do you kind of want to go into a little history about how yeah yeah i can uh take the lead on that part so you know, if people are familiar with film history in any degree, they realize there's these sort of moments that coalesce around a film director, around a few film directors. So you take, for example, the fact that people like uh, um, Spielberg and Lucas went to the same film school with a bunch of other people, like I think possibly De Palma and the guy who did um, Wolverine's uh, Red, Red, Red Dawn, I think. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there's moments like that. Obviously, there's like the big ones like uh, the French New Wave, and they all worked at the same place. So an interesting thing in terms of 90s filmmaking is that Sundance in the early to mid 90s was involved with a lot of directors careers launching off in a big way. Uh, A few of which I believe are like Tarantino and so on. I think maybe Rodriguez as well. But and don't quote me on this, but uh, I believe Wes Anderson. Oh no, I know Wes Anderson. I don't know if Rodriguez was, but okay. Wes Anderson 
was also a part of Sundance. So he initially made Bottle Rocket as a short. You can find it on YouTube. It's like 13 minutes long. And he got into Sundance and a mega producer, I forget the name of, saw it and really liked. Obviously, you can see Sundance, um, Wes Anderson's style in there. Mm-hmm. So he liked the beat of it, the wittiness of it, and he gave him the money to make Bottle Rocket. Now, interestingly enough, when Bottle Rocket was finished and they were going around showing it to people, Sundance rejected it. And not only that, a lot of people, when they started getting test scoring by the studio that the producer worked for, the audiences were panning the movie. So what they ended up doing is, what's the understand? Yeah, they went out and they reshot things. I think they said they reshot about 20 minutes, including the ending. And so now the bottle rocket we have is the final version of it. Apparently, it's a lot better than whatever that initial version was. Um, But it didn't get back into Sundance. But it's interesting. Wes Anderson is sort of one of those 90s Sundance filmmakers whose careers were started by the festival. That's why a festival is still, you know, beloved to this day. Everyone wants to get in because of people like Tarantino and Wes Anderson and so on. Right. Uh, It still makes people to this day. But that's the history. That's the history of Wes Anderson. Uh, Apparently, obviously, which Wilson brother? Was it Luke Wilson or was it Owen Wilson? Uh, Um, What? That helped write it. Oh, that uh, was Owen Wilson. Wilson. Yeah. So they apparently found each other. They were going both going to the college, and there was a writer's workshop there, and they met each other there. And that's how this whole thing genesis. So that's awesome. That's the origin. That's how it can happen. Everyone wants the uh, the short film to do that for them, you know? <laughs> that's Everyone true. dreams. I'll make a short film, and then, uh, but I don't know. I think that can still definitely happen, and it does. There's examples, but I think that was definitely a more prominent thing. Sure. Back in the day when making a film was a lot harder technically, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I gotta say, uh um, you can you can tell that this is Wes Anderson's film. It's just so oh, apparent. Yeah. And you even watch I that initial short film they made before they made the feature film. It's so great to watch that because it sort of vindicates what I what I've been saying about short films, which is like, <laughs> there's not really a story there. There's a story, but there's not like this um, how people are trying to mimic a, for- a feature film and a short film. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's better to it's, just focus in on a moment in time. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, and you know, when you watch the feature film after watching the short or before or after, you realize that that first initial like twenty minute sequence is the short film again. So really, what they did was they sort of shot the beginning of a movie and they released that as a short film and it was great. And that's how people should do short films. In my opinion, they should do scenes or moments or sequences. They shouldn't be uh, trying to cram a feature film into 15, 20 minutes, you know? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. So, uh, actually we should talk about, uh, we, we've kind of discussed this at, um, at short length a little bit, um, in previous episodes, but, uh, we kind of, I want to touch on, uh, directors that kind of put uh, a style over substance. Yeah. Um, and when we talk about directors that do that, we are usually talking about people like, uh, Wes Anderson and like Quentin Tarantino. These Sundance people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually, I actually had just had a thought that maybe, um, maybe that's actually why, because when you think about like what, is required to stand out at a festival. Sure. Right. Um, it's not so much um, substance because, you know, you're competing against a bunch of other short films and you're not really going to be able to um, pull something of substance in, you know, 
10 to 20 mm-hmm. minutes you know yeah so it, it makes sense that these like highly stylized directors would uh come to the forefront of all that um but essentially we're not we're not saying that the movies have no substance because when you watch them they clearly do yeah. you know but um essentially it's more about where the focus is for them you know like um a lot of directors um the substance you know their treatment is slave to the material you know um and basically like when we just talked about fincher who's exactly like that right where like his treatment changes via the uh subject matter at hand yeah you know you can still absolutely tell it's fincher you know but uh he does like different things um for different moments right Sure. Um, and it's specifically to evoke the same emotion that the substance has, uh, the substance has behind it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas someone like Tarantino or Wes Anderson, they, they build their own style. It's almost like a fashion statement. Right. And no matter what the substance is, the style is always, and the treatment is always, you know, their specific style. Yeah. An interesting right? overlap with that is they also write their own movies, you know, generally speaking. Right. Right. As opposed to Fincher, you know, right? Um, but yeah, no. When you take uh, that's actually one of the reasons why I think that the Royal Tenenbaums and Bottle Rocket are so good is because I think that it uh, it really uses Wes Anderson's style um, to its fullest, you know, um, mm-hmm. and kind of to rope it into this film. You know, this film is about like the romanticized romanticization of crime right sure um and you have these like really very innocent and naive like um young men you know who are just like glorifying the whole thing and just kind of like the cartoony nature of the treatment i felt like fit really well for the substance in this yeah you know where like when you look at something like uh I don't know, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, for example, right? Like this, the treatment was cartoony, but the characters were made cartoony um, to fit. Sure. Right. Um, same thing with Moonrise Kingdom. Right. Um, whereas in this film, like I feel like the characters aren't very cartoony. It's just that like they have this super naive outlook and they do exist in the real world, you know, yeah. but uh but I don't know this, the, the style, the treatment, you know, this kind of like cartoony um, take on everything really works for being in the perspective of uh, these friends. Right? Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, one thing I'd like to point out, though, as well, is uh, this is his first go at a feature film. Right. So, yeah, I think you see his styles there. You definitely see there's some unique color choices that he does. He has the whole symmetry thing and the framing occasionally. And then some montages uh, as well. Yeah, exactly. So he has some of his things in there that he's going to develop. But I think part of the reason it isn't uh, as identifiable with Wes Anderson's style or maybe as extreme, extreme, you know, yeah, is because it's his first film. You know, yeah, I feel 100%. like if he made this script today, it would be as if it was Moonrise Kingdom or Grand Budapest Hotel. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think like, uh, that's why, I, I mean, I haven't seen Rushmore, but I kind of felt like his earlier movies, uh, were a little more in line with, um, 
what I'm talking about where, you know, like substance holds a higher value in it. Okay. You know, where like, I think the newer ones, a lot of the, a lot of the substance is slave to the style, you know, I could see that. Yeah. Um, which, you know, there's no problem with that, but it does tend to kind of lean a little more towards entertainment than, you know, something of meaning. Yeah. Um, which like when I look at bottle rocket, I'm, you know, uh, this, this has, an incredible insight, you know, and basically throughout the whole film. Um, and I kind of want to touch on this cartoony thing with this, but like, um, throughout the whole film, it feels so like not self-aware the film itself. Yeah. You know, um, it feels like completely out of touch with reality and, um, they really kind of just rope it in at the end and, uh, show that it was incredibly self-aware the entire time. Sure. You know, um, which I which I love that last line by Owen Wilson. Uh, what was it? Yeah. They'll never catch me because I'm fucking innocent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Goes into the close up. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. But um, there. Yeah. Before before we get into that too much. Um. Yeah. Just c- to continue on, kind of style this kind of like style over substance type of filmmaking. Um. I don't think it has, I think with directors like this, it actually accentuates their abilities in terms of like craftsmanship for the film. Right. Okay. Cause, cause you almost have to have, like if you're, if you're relying almost entirely on style, right. And you know, you don't have some profound substance to back it up. Yeah. Right. Um, it really, really puts the onus on the filmmaker to like, um, you know, hold the entire <laughs> film up with their craftsmanship yeah exactly yeah great frames great movement of the camera really good blocking right uh, all that sort of stuff yeah um and I, I think that's that's why a lot of people that are coming into film right off the bat like gravitate towards wes anderson and tarantino yeah. is because like one their insights are usually incredibly simple but it's what they're right? thinking about it's craft yeah right exactly um and so it's very easy to see that these guys are very well like very well thought out filmmakers yeah you know um i think when when you're coming in at first and you see something like uh you know villeneuve uh, it's not quite as obvious um right at first and it's because he's trying to be invisible right sure um and i'd say fincher is trying to be invisible too and like um you know you, you you can you can recognize a fincher film you know, if you're really looking, but I feel like most people when they're coming in, they just think it looks like very beautiful. Yeah. You know, you have um, to have a trained eye. But yeah, I mean, a great filmmaker, they do generate a voice, even if their their goal is not to have an, an obvious. Yeah, style, of course. You know what I mean? Yeah. So with a trained eye, you can you can recognize who's making. something. Yeah, I, I think know? that we were even talking about that with Villeneuve with uh, watching the um, trailer for Dune. Yeah. Where we were like, okay, yeah, we're really starting to see like that visual style with him, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, to kind of bring it back to Wes Anderson, um, I fell in love with Bottle Rocket when I first saw it, just because you know this was one of my actually last Anderson Wes Anderson films because like I hadn't I've, I'd watched almost all the other ones beforehand, sure. right? just just not Rushmore or Life Aquatic. Okay. Um, and then it was this one as well, but I had seen all the other ones. I really loved, uh, Darjeeling limited. 
Um, I liked Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, Moonrise Kingdom, and um, Grand Budapest a lot, but I also kind of felt like they, you know, they they were pulling back on that uh, substance department and pushing really, really hard on that style department. Yeah. You know, um, and I'm not sure why. And the messages, right? The messages, and I don't mean this in its negative way, but they're not even lean. It's like truly simple. You know what I mean? Right, so, right. And that doesn't make it bad, but it is, you know, when you have that misbalance of like this way, um, way, you know, very dramatic almost, you could say style, like it's so in your face, mm. it's so saturated with the style. But then also, you know, it's like a seesaw. It's completely weighted on that end towards that. And then the message is very simple inside about, you know, childhood innocence and experiencing things and growing up, you know, in the right. case of Moonrise Kingdom, you know? Right, right. Um, it does It is, does seem uh, you do come away a little, I don't know. Yeah, it almost it almost tweed. kind of feels like um, copying and pasting your last movie. Yeah. Um, but I do, I got to say gotta say i am a fan of um grand budapest hotel i yeah. when i first watched that i did even though the message is so simple on that one too it did get to me in a genuine way and that's why i say sort of the apex of his style because yeah i, I felt like it actually fit that story it wasn't just copy pasted on i mean in um, terms of treatment um in terms i mean treatment in wes anderson's way uh grand budapest was his like masterpiece um, yeah is a uh, magnum opus Right. But I would say that like it is not his most kind of like effective film. Sure. And I think um, what you're also getting at here is when you watch something like the Royal Tenenbaums, there is like a big there's a meaty message in there and there's oh, like yeah. complexity in the character relationships, you know, and that just does not exist in something like Moonrise Kingdom or some of his other films. Right. You know? Well, and I think with the Grand Budapest Hotel, like when I really took that sto- when I take that story, I would I would almost say like this one shouldn't go to Wes Anderson. Okay. Right. Um, at least stylistically. Right. Like I'm sure Wes Anderson could um, break out of that style and make something else, you know, but like, unfortunately, I think a lot of uh, a lot of the time this kind of happens with directors where like, something something will work and it becomes really scary to not do the thing that worked last time. You know, yeah. um, and well, I've, a, I've I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, it's, it's a lot easier to, um, you know kind of brand yourself and be like, Oh, I do this. Right. And like, this is the type of make, like, if you want this style, you come to me. Right. And it's, it's a very like consumerist, um, thought process. Yeah. And it's completely different than just having a voice because I think I've told you this, but I was thinking about this a few months ago where an issue with a lot of filmmakers or writers for that matter, or artists of any variety, is they essentially, if you think about it in terms of writers with books, they write the same one to three books. Like you mm-hmm. can take some of the great living writers um, and essentially you can partition all of their books into like two or three sections where he wrote this one book this one time and now he's sort of rewritten this book seven different times, you know? Right. And it's a similar thing with filmmakers. And I think that's sort of what you're describing with Wes Anderson here, where he did the one thing, it was successful. And now he's redone that thing, you know, a few right. times. He's maybe written two original directed two original films and he's remade them a handful of times, you know? Right. So, yeah. I've been saving yeah. Rushmore just cause I'm like hoping that it'll be another bottle rocket for me. Cause sure. like I loved bottle rocket. I loved the Royal Tenenbaums and those were his first and third film, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so I'm hoping that 
like, you know, Rushmore is that great second film where the style still had like there, there was a reason why he was portraying the style that way. Other than yeah. like, this is what's worked before. You know, it was all like based on the story. Um, But he always um, I, I feel like he's a lot of the times his stories do have to do with some sort of like naivety or, you know, something like that. And it's, especially his earlier ones. Um. I mean, even Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel have to deal yeah, with, you know, Darjeeling Limited. It's the same way. Yeah. Have to um, deal with sort of losing your childhood and becoming a, an adult. Right. Um, but the reason that I liked Bottle Rocket so much was because I felt like, uh, you know, he, he never really loses it. You know, I mean, he, I guess he does a yeah. little bit at the end. Well, it's uh, it's what they were saying, you know, when uh, own, uh, Luke Wilson's character is leaving the mental hospital, uh, voluntary mental hospital, yeah, and he goes and visits his younger sister, and she's really cynical, and he talks to Owen Wilson's character, and he's like, "Dang, why does everyone got to be such a cynic?" You know? Yeah. Well, Owen Wilson's character is the exact opposite of that, right? No matter what, things <laughs> right. are going to be positive. You don't know, right. you know, at the very end there where they realize the guy who's been shot in the elevator and he's like, I'm going to go back in, you know, let me do this, you know. Yeah. He's like, you're going to get caught. And he's like, no way, no <laughs> way. You don't know that. I think that's his exact words. <laughs> I don't well, know that. Th- that's the part That's the part where he says, um, um, they'll never catch me because I'm fucking innocent. And they do this awesome shot where they kind of like do a push in. You know, okay. they they have a push in and he's like looking off into the like distance. You yeah. know, and there's like this glow on his face. They they spent a lot of time on the shot, you know, which is and, and like it it was a angle that they hadn't used in that scene yet. And it was like specifically you could tell that it was specifically geared for this line. You know, yeah. it was also I think the one time that they used the word fuck, which means that like, you know, they can't say it anywhere else in the film or else it'll be rated R. Yeah. Right. So it's a very like he, he wanted to underline that part specifically, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that it really represents his kind of mentality. Right. Yeah. Um, which like when when you think of what they're doing. Right. They're, they're committing a crime like he knows they're committing a crime. Yeah. Right. So why would this guy tell him that he's fucking innocent? Right. Yeah. And I think it's because like with everything that's like nothing, it's it's all about like intention, right? Where like they're not they're not trying to rob these people. They're trying to be robbers. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> they're trying to do something um, great and awesome. Yeah. Right. And it's it's this like young suburban attitude where they mm-hmm. kind of just like live in this bubble and they're naive to the world and they they like glorify like um like they're they're like glorifying this heist you know and i think that's that that even comes through in the short film when they're like robbing his mom's house you know for practice (laughs) um and just like everything that they do you know like is like there's no darkness in it even though what they're doing is criminal yeah Right. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, at the very beginning, we get this idea of Luke Wilson's character sort of being depressed uh, as having a sort of negative and dark view of reality. And mm-hmm. obviously, Owen Wilson is the exact opposite. 
Yeah. Uh, however, when they're going through these situations, you know, what happens with oh, Luke Wilson? Well, Luke Wilson, as we'll cover, you know, he has this sort of romantic entanglement that doesn't work out and then it does. So he has that bright side of that. But in the in the middle space, when him and Owen Wilson sort of break up, they're not going to try to be robbers together anymore. And Luke has to head back without his love and try to live a normal life. Owen Wilson goes and he actually does uh, sort of group up with the the thieves that he wanted to bring everyone to. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, of course, Owen, Luke Wilson gets out of it and gets the girl. Uh, yeah. But Owen Wilson goes to jail. <laughs> and then he says that great line, something to the effect of, I don't remember the exact wording. He's like, isn't it crazy that like, like a few months ago you were in the mental hospital and now I'm in jail? And it's sort of this great juxtaposition of like this really positive guy is ultimately the one, you know, this completely non-cynical guy is the, ultimately the one that's in jail, <laughs> even though the yeah. like the more depressed one is on the outside. It's um, it's a funny thing to chew over. Yeah. Um, but I, oh, you know, I, I also love this whole like idea that um, like when you when you take this film and you look at other like heist films that glorify. Um, and, and this is actually kind of what I mean, where I think Wes Anderson's style fit this film really well is you look at other heist films that kind of glorify, you know, um, this kind of criminal behavior. Yeah. Right. And like, it's funny cause it's, that's not in the treatment in those other films, you know, but in this film it's incredibly self-aware and that becomes apparent towards the end. Right. Um, yeah. I'd say like if you if you've seen other Wes Anderson films, it would be apparent at the beginning, but I could see why like it might get panned initially if you had never seen a Wes Anderson Wes Anderson film before. Yeah. You know. Um, but you know, like you have you have like those films where they like commit a crime, you know, they rob a place, then they go on the lamb. Um, you know, one of the guys falls in love with this like exotic woman while they're like in Mexico or something. Sure. You know, and like and, and like every single part of like those kind of films exists in this film, but all of it's as mundane as you could possibly make it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. so they're like, it's they're hilarious. like on the run, but it's just like some random motel, you know, and, yeah. and the, no one's they, chasing they, them. They <laughs> exactly. No one's chasing them, even though they think they're being chased. You know, it, yeah. It's it's very much like when you were a kid and you, you like committed, um, you, you did something bad just to like do it. You know, yeah. and then you were like had to run away, even though like no one knew what you were doing. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, yeah. it just got to you nerves. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, Owen Wilson, right? He has this incredible positive attitude, but he just keeps getting punished by the world, right? Like, right. The, um, <laughs> like the time he gets in the fight with the guy because he argues over about pull, you know? Yeah. The guy's like cheating at pull or something and he gets beaten up. Um, right. Or, you know, going to jail. Uh, getting screwed over by the guy who he thinks is his friend, who's the head of the the thief group that right, they hook right. up with at the end, and he actually steals um, all the stuff out of his friend's house while they're trying to commit this heist that obviously, like, from almost immediately, just goes wrong. Right. Um, but he's a bottle rocket, right? I think it's on the nose, but I think Owen Wilson is sort of a bottle rocket. That's sort of the idea of his character. Mm-hmm. He's a sort of bright flame, but it ultimately explodes. He just gets punished, you know. <laughs> Luke Wilson telling him, "No, it's over. I'm going home." And then yeah. he punches Luke, you know. Yeah. So. But um, no, there's a, uh, there's definitely, uh, his character is amazing in this. Owen Wilson's. Yeah. I think, you know, he's not the main character, but because um, we're following uh, Luke Wilson, Luke Wilson's yeah. character, Anthony. Um, 
But uh, yeah, we're following his character. But like, really, this film is about, um, you know, Dignan, Owen Wilson's character. Yeah. Um, I also thought the Bob character was a really good, um, a really good addition where he's just kind of this. He, he's that one friend that just kind of goes along with everything. It seems yeah. like, but like doesn't he's got really no want one else. to. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, he looks like uh, Jimmy Fallon. I kept looking at him like, Oh yeah, you're right. Huh? Jimmy Fallon is in this movie. <laughs> but um, what's his name? I haven't seen uh, him. Stuff. Robert, Mu- Robert Musgrave, I think. Okay. Was I'm he trying to else? look it up. Uh, Not much from what I can see. I'm trying to make sure that's him though. Yeah, it must be Robert Musgrave. He was in Idiocracy, and that's okay. pretty much it. Well, that, was in the original that actually had Luke Wilson in it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Idiocracy, so he probably just got dragged along as the third right, guy. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, But the the girl, um, I forget what her, what's her name again in the, in the thing? Uh, Inez. Inez, yeah. yeah. Her name's Lumi Cafazos, Kef, but I've seen her in other things. She was a re- noticeable face. So. Okay, that's cool. Um, and then James Caan. We have James Caan as the uh, the great James Caan as the Mr. that must Henry. have been the actor that they yeah exactly the head of the thief group yeah uh, the actor they spent their budget on <laughs> yeah yeah what a good character too um, but you know like it especially on a second watch it's very clear that um, you know Dignan is is his mark the whole time or yeah. like Bob through Dignan. You know, and yeah. they just he just kind of sends these guys on this like make believe heist. You know, yeah, it's funny. He's <laughs> yeah. still it's funny. It's it's dual. He's almost like he is a very much a father figure to these these three guys mm-hmm. in that brief space. Um, yeah. And the, the important lesson he teaches them at the very end is stealing all of Bob's shit. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Um, so he's got this sort of dual role. He's both the sort of villain and the the father, and sort yeah. of matures them. But, um, you know, like, honestly, like it, you see this kind of naivety kind of play out through the entire film. And there's like literally through every single aspect of these guys' life, like even when they're planning it, they're talking about hang gliders and explosives, you know? Yeah. Like it's very much for the um, for kind of like the image of being a thief. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I think that's what's honestly, like, frankly, just like cute about the film is that like all of it's just, you know, this this guy is innocent, you know, yeah. <laughs> like he is truly, truly innocent. Right. He's like like the darkness of the world hasn't gotten to him. Not at all. I mean, when right. they rob the bookstore and they the bookstore only has the small bags for the cash. And uh, the manager's like, don't, yeah. don't you dare talk to me that way, punk, or something to that effect. Yeah. He's like, oh, um, sir, could I please have a larger bag for the cash? <laughs> you know? Like, even in the middle of holding them at a gun, you know? Right, right. He's still, yeah, it, it's it's great. And, and like, I don't know. I, I think at the end, you know, he's he's basically the role's kind of reversed right by the end where like, you know, at the beginning, you know, he's busting uh, Anthony out of air quotes, busting Anthony out of the uh, voluntary hospital. Yeah. Right. And he's saying that like, he, he has to climb out the window and he has to do it this way for Dignan. Right. Yeah. 
And I kind of saw the end as being the same thing where he's like Dignan still being the same, like innocent, naive person for them because he knows they need it. Sure. Right. Um, And you can tell that maybe it like it faded a little bit Um, or maybe Mm -hmm. all the way um, at the end when he's walking away because he's going to be gone for two years, you know? Yeah, he's a bottle rocket. He exploded. Yeah. Um, But yeah, no, like this film really only had like four or five set pieces, I think, you know, and actually, you know what? That's we we, were talking about uh, James Bond in our tenant episode. And we talked about how like these larger than life set pieces were a big part of James Bond. Yeah. You know, uh, I think Wes Anderson's actually the same way where like he really he really focuses in on set pieces, right? Whether well, it's set design in general is a huge thing. Right. With Wes right. Anderson, you know? Yeah. But like, I mean, imagine being the props guy on a Wes Anderson film. Oh you know, yeah. Like everything <laughs> is meticulously created and then like framed for mm-hmm. symmetry and all that sort of stuff. Right. Right. But, uh, because in this film, it was really like the major set pieces were like the motel, uh, Bob's house, uh, bookstore, bookstore. And then the, uh, uh, the end heist, right? Yeah. I don't really know what it was, like a processing plant or something. Yeah, it was some sort of like meat processing plant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh yeah, no. I, I love that. I love the tempo of the ending heist where he has this really old uh, sort of <laughs> South Asian guy that's like supposed to be able to break into the safe. Right. And everything right. just keeps going wrong. Luke and Owen Wilson leave their post and then guys start showing up back from lunch. <laughs> and like he's they're holding them at gunpoint. And they and have the idea to like yeah. use the smoke bombs and it sets off the fire alarm. <laughs> yeah. And Owen Wilson is throwing down smoke bombs and moving people in and out of rooms and he keeps checking back in with this this uh, safe cracker, this really old safe cracker. And he's like, I can't do it. I do. And he was talking <laughs> such a great game. Like, Oh, I'm going to crack this so fast. And when he sees the safe, Oh yeah, easy, easy. And then as he, as uh, Owen Wilson is like sort of rushing him out of the building, he's like, and the elevator's like, I don't know, man. I guess I, I guess I lost my touch. I just got, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Everything's just so snappy. That, that yeah. classic Wes Anderson snappiness yeah. is great. Um, and um, Owen Wilson and his character really, they really hold that center of it. The, the sort of pacing. Um, yeah, it's great. But the the thing that I that I really loved about this too is that like you know this other Mister Henry was was playing this like smaller game right, and he was using Dignan's need Owen Wilson's uh, kind of need for the grandeur and the larger than life stuff to like basically just rob his friend of everything he had. Yeah, right. And it was like he how they were talking about how like they. He he sent them with like two really old guys from his crew that had like health conditions, you know, so they could be like um, exonerated yeah. in the criminal case afterwards, <laughs> you know, yeah. and his crew just totally like pull off their heist, you know, mm-hmm. while. Uh, and, and Bob shoots one of them by accident. <laughs> right. Well, no, he didn't even shoot him. Right. He just uh, caused him to have a heart attack. Oh, OK. I yeah. Shop. I got you. Yeah, but that's why he was holding his left arm was because, you know, he had a bum ticker, as they said. Gotcha. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no. So basically, you know, the, the heist starts off. Uh, he, he seems like it, it seems like everything's going pretty well. But then, like, it goes from one busted uh, walkie talkie to like two people leaving their posts. Suddenly the guys come back from lunch, throws down the smoke bombs, um, 
the smoke goes off. Everyone's freaking out. Bob accidentally shoots his gun. The guy starts having a heart attack, and then the safe cracker can't crack the safe. Yeah, you know, <laughs> everything just like it's so close up. Yeah, it's so great watching. I mean, I mean, that's that actually kind of goes uh, hand in hand with that idea that like you know, Dignan's Dignan's like a bottle rocket, right? Yeah, and that's that's his. That's the point where you know he explodes, <laughs> yeah. and uh, no, but it was it was. Fantastic. And I, I think this this film like earns Dignan's last line so well. Yeah. You know, or not his last line, but like his his line in the climax, right? Yeah, his ending. Yeah. Yeah. Both his climax and his ending are earned really well. Yeah. And these people, you know, like you said, he's sort of saying it for them because he knows they need it, you know? Right. At the very end there. Well, it, it sort of goes to even Luke Wilson's, you know, our main character, his journey, where yeah. he sort of needs this really romantic flavor to life. And if he doesn't have it, he doesn't see the point in life. Right. Right. So right. that's why when he's leaving this mental hospital, he's he's attaching himself to his close friend, Owen. Yeah. And also why he he pursues this woman that he finds at the motel, you know, this maid. Mm-hmm. And because uh, he needs this romantic aspect of his life in order to live, you know. Right. Right. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah. I love the whole like thing about the the water sports question, which sent him to the hospital. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was like, not only did I want to answer that question, I never wanted to answer another question about water sports ever again. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, I think I think like Wes Anderson touches on the darker aspects of like mundane life pretty well. You know. Like nothing, nothing truly epic. I don't like really ever happens in his films. And when there is kind of like a chance for something truly epic to to happen, like I feel like he takes pleasure in fizzling it out. Sure. Right. And making it like not really epic at all. Right. Like if he were to like cause an avalanche in one of his films, it would like the dynamite would blow up and the whole avalanche would go in the wrong direction. Right. Yeah. Like that's the kind of that's the kind of epicness that he likes to show in his films. And um it's it's interesting because I, I think um uh he really likes to make films about people that are kind of like losers or failures, you know, people sure. that can't really um live up to their dreams or expectations and they like yeah. talk more they have they have a bigger mouth than they do uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, they're not socially adjusted. Right, right. Well-adjusted um, people. Yeah, they can't, they can't put their money where their mouth is, right? Yeah. Um, but I think every single one of his films has characters like that. You know, I'd agree. Um, but uh, it's interesting because it, it's it almost finds like I think what he does as a storyteller is he 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 finds the beauty in the smaller things. You know, and he he shows us that the, like, he he doesn't he doesn't ever want to rely on the bigger things in the world or the gr- more grand things in the world, you know. And even when that's what he promises, he always doesn't deliver. You know, yeah. um, but I think that's interesting, and I think that's a very uh, it, it's so bizarre because it's a very like realist take on the world. But uh, yeah, it's within his films. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's like so. Um, uh you know it's so cartoony yeah. but i don't know I, I think that's i think that's why a lot of people find such like 
just like profoundness from just his style, you know, is because of that, because you have this like, you know, because with the cartoon, you always think larger than life. Sure. Right. And then to have a cartoon and then be even more mundane than most movies, that's like, you know. um, Yeah, he generally does have these these sort of emotional climax in his films are generally sort of quiet. I think of something yeah, like yeah. Moonrise Kingdom or Grand Budapest Hotel or this. There, there's a resonance between characters, an emotional resonance. You know, Grand Budapest Hotel, they're at the table and he's sort of talking about how they all died except for him. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and here, they're sort of sitting there in the, in the prison and they sort of have their last <laughs> moment together, you know, for yeah. a couple of years. But I think I think that um, whole... It's, it's almost like uh, Wes Anderson's whole style is indicative of his profound outlook on life, you know? And that's, um, that's why I think so many people kind of gravitate towards his films, you know? And I don't know, like as individual films, I think, you know, it, it's generally been getting weaker with age, you know? But I, I do think that that's because he kind of like copy pasted his style onto every single film. You know, yeah, and honestly, I'd really love to see Wes Anderson, um, like, you know, not lose his voice, but try a new style of film. You know, I think it would be really be interesting because he he is a, a very very good filmmaker, and you see here that he was like super super creative with the insight behind Bottle Rocket, um, and then also the Royal Tenenbaums a little later. I haven't seen Rushmore, but I assume that it's probably gonna be pretty similar. Um, yeah, but he's kind of making these films about naivety and like, um, I think they're they're all told really well and like the world around them isn't naive. It's really just the characters who you're seeing the world through. Sure. Right. Um, but I think like later as his, uh, subject material changed, right. And he decided to go for bigger things. Like the world had to become naive to, um, kind of support the style. Right. So then mm-hmm. it did kind of start becoming more like like when you think about like Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom versus the Royal Tenenbaums and Bottle Rocket, the later ones are far more cartoony. Right. Oh, yeah. I um, mean, it's the apex. It's it goes from his style being, you know, controlling the vast majority of everything on the screen to literally the most minute details. You know, right. Everything right. is under the vision of Wes Anderson, you know. Right, right. Which is fine. It's just that, like, you know, when when you have this cartoony, like, you know, um, cartoony mundane style, you know, it, there's only a, f- a few things that that really works for. Right. And when you get into that's like, what he's been doing <laughs> right, over and right. over again. <laughs> right. And that's why I think when you get into his later films, you know, like even Grand Budapest Hotel, when you when you look at. Um, it, when you look at it as a film itself and look at it like from front to back in terms of treatment, it is like ridiculous how much effort went into that and how uh, how precise everything was. But when you look at it in comparison to the substance of the film and like, you know, basically what the film is actually about. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't it, do, it. There's a lot of points where I feel like it doesn't match up or things can only exist because he's he's dipped he's essentially saturated the entire world in cartoony extravagance. Right. Sure. Um, I, I just, I just wish that like, 
I could see him kind of put the amount of effort that he did to create the bottle rocket and uh, Royal Tenenbaum style in his later films as well. Um, but I think that's why whenever you have a genre switch with a director like this, um, it tends to bring out some of their best work again. You know, like I think I honestly think Fantastic Mr. Fox was my favorite of his of his later stuff. Right. Um, and I think it's because he was trying his hand at stop motion. Sure. Right. Um, yeah, I can see that. So like. Uh, and also, like we've been saying, his style fits incredibly well with anything cartoony. Right. Right. It's right. cartoon. So. <laughs> um, but like when you look at another st- stylistic director like Tarantino. Right. Anytime he breaks into a new genre field, um, he does an excellent job, right? But then once he gets used to that field of genre and then he, like, just, you know, gets back into his, like, 100% his style. Sure. You know, it tends that's when he tends to make his weaker films. Yeah, I think that's why Inglorious Bastards was so great, and then yeah, uh, like his first one. Once a time right? in Hollywood was so great. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. And, I would uh, almost, even though, um, even though Django is technically a different genre, it's so much the same style as Inglorious Bastards. Same with um, Hateful Eight. That's why I, I, sort of I, I thought Django them. was good, though. Like I thought that was one it's of good. Films. I mean, just like Wes Anderson's movies are good. You know what I mean? Like, we're, well, I, we're, no, I we're thought that was like better them, than but. his other ones too, just because like. Um, I thought that was the first oh, one where I he don't. used music well. <laughs> um, oh, well, yeah, he had an actual composer, I think, on that film. Yeah. Or, um, but anyways. Yeah, back to uh, Wes Anderson. <laughs> well, yeah, and also just Tarantino. is like, it's yeah. very similar to what you're saying. Like, he has these initial hits, like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, right? And mm-hmm. Kill Bill. And then every single time he sort of levels up his style almost, not even necessarily switch of genre. That's when he makes his next great thing. Right, and I really think you see that with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because when you watch that movie, it feels as if it wasn't directed by Tarantino until the very end. Right, and right. I really liked that switch up. And right, it really made it a lot of fun to watch. Well, and um, so with uh, with Bottle Rocket, right, like this this film being about naivety and then having that like cartoony, like mundane quality to it, just like and like truly, truly, just like the entire thing circled innocence. Right. Um, And like kind of watching this whole film revolve around Dignan's character. Right. And Mm -hmm. like seeing his whole uh, his whole story arc. Right. That was like that was what was a pleasure to watch in this film for me. You know, and I I I got to say. Yeah. After I seen it uh, one time before this, and when I first watched it, I was not a great fan. Yeah. I, uh, I sort of wrote it off a little bit. I was like, you know what? I prefer the later Wes Anderson movies I watched. But after rewatching it a couple of days ago, actually yesterday, hmm. I really, really liked it. I thought it was a lot better for whatever reason on my second watch. I got a lot okay. more into it. Remember on my first watch, I sort of stopped uh, paying attention really towards when they got to the motel. I just wasn't in it. Right. right. Um, but this time I was totally there. I don't know. It, I don't know what it, the difference it is. It could just be because um, like I was kind of noticing that where I was like, you know, if if like you weren't if you didn't really have Wes Anderson in your mind throughout this whole thing, because like if you had never watched a Wes Anderson movie before, this would almost feel like like for the people that watched this in 1996, I yeah. almost feel like the end felt like a twist. 
Sure. Right. Where it was like you're watching this like you're watching this incredibly naive movie about like criminals and um, like, you know, just the world in general. Right. Yeah. And you're like, these these guys are committing crimes, but it's almost like they're not criminals. (laughs) Um, Like this, this isn't how it goes. And like at the end, we realize, no, it's not how it goes. Right. Yeah, it's a bunch of young boys. It's like if 12-year-old boys were trying to pull off a heist. Right. And all of these guys are like, you know, for lack of a better word, losers, right? They, they're they not yeah. planning anything for their life. They're not trying to make anything of themselves. And they like have, they like, like Dignan finds them and like basically shares his dream with them, uh-huh. you know? And they're like, he's like, you know, essentially they're going off like, the uh like the romanticized version of what a of a, a like a criminal is right and yeah. they're like oh we're gonna be that that's our goal right yeah like i'm gonna be the ma- mastermind you're gonna be the point guy you're gonna be the getaway driver and we're gonna be a team together you know mm-hmm. and like their first heist is so small you know <laughs> no one cares no one's after them and they're just like they're living in their own limelight they're over the moon yeah Yeah. (laughs) um and they're they're ecstatic and then like you know the real world comes down on them a little bit you know not not even from their uh heist that they did but just like you know the rest of the world catches up to them and it really just starts throwing a wrench in everything yeah Um, and you have that moment where bob and luke's character sort of do return to the normal world in the middle of the film yeah and attempt to make things of themselves they start working normal jobs and they start doing mm-hmm. normal things and they try to be productive members of society and so on yeah um, and then owen just crashes back into their life and he, he <laughs> you know he gives them once again the dream but it could be better you know we could do it yeah and they they do it for him but as you see at the end they're sort of doing it for themselves as well um, right they need him um because otherwise there's just not the the meaning or the romance in life as with it when you do have Owen, you know? Right. Right. But yeah, no, like, and then like, it's interesting as well when you think about that, because Owen started getting almost jealous or angry that Luke was transferring these romantic feelings, you know, yeah. these romantic desires onto <laughs> right. uh, the girl he finds. Right. Right. Uh, Inez, you know? Um, and that's ultimately what, you know, with our main character, that's sort of the conclusion of his storyline is he gets the girl. And so now he has that. And now he can do, and he can have a normal life well having that romantic meaning right right um so it's interesting yeah no but uh yeah just for the like i can't even imagine seeing this for the first time in 1996 like going to a theater watching this and like not knowing who wes anderson was you know and yeah. i feel i really do feel like for 90 percent of this film you'd be like who the fuck is this guy like <laughs> you're like i want to why does he i want to look at the world this way Sure. Um, But then you really see that there's this very distinct self-awareness from like uh, from the writers at the end, which is Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I want to see the the cut that didn't go over with audiences. You know, I want to see it before the reshot 20 minutes and change some. Yeah. I wonder, you know what? Maybe I wonder if it was like they didn't really show off the self-awareness at the end or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, but I mean, honestly, how long is the ending from the moment they get reunited to 
you know, the, the heist failing. Is that 20 minutes? It could be. That could yeah. be 20 minutes. Did they honestly just sort of reshoot that, tack that on or something? Maybe. I don't know. Um, oh, but one of the, one of the parts where I really saw Wes Anderson in this film was the, uh, the montage where they're trying out all the guns. Sure. You know, like that was, I, I immediately was like, oh my God, this Wes Anderson. Right. Absolutely. Um, which like, yeah, it's little bits, little bits here and there. There's some symmetry in the shots. There's some choice of color, some costumes, right? Some the apparel people are wearing, right? But he doesn't have the. The budget and he's probably not there himself yet to do the whole total Wes Anderson thing, right right know? well and also like um this this film actually uses a lot of handheld um yeah which is not something Wes Anderson does anymore um, true but I actually interesting enough though it's the same cinematographer it's Robert D Yeoman oh interesting yeah I mean I'm yeah. sure they like grew together but uh I kind of miss the handheld because I, I think it like this didn't feel as uniform as the rest of his films. Exactly. You know, and I kind of like that. Um, Precision was lacking. Y- yeah. Or, I mean. And I mean that in a good way. Yeah. It, it was <laughs> it, the, like the surface level precision was lacking, but I felt like there was a lot more like um, emotion or soul behind every decision made. Right. Like when he decided to go handheld, he was like following Anthony's character running around looking for Inez. Yeah. Right. So the thing that I really liked about um, like the handheld, like there, there's this one part where Anthony's running around, you know, looking for Inez. Right. And uh, they were running behind him um, in total handheld. And obviously like that's going to lose some of the surface level precision behind um, like exactly where that frame hits, where he is in the frame, anything like that. But you get kind of like a more, um, emotional take on what's going on in the scene right so yeah. while i like while i while you know we're losing out on um like metric precision we're gaining um like soul right we're getting yeah. wes anderson's treatment right yeah as opposed to the quite literally the most precise you can possibly be in his later films with something like grand budapest hotel where everything is framed exactly in mind with you know symmetry and so on and movement right right um but i don't know like i i with this film in particular like i got the chills that i get from when you know owen wilson's character says they'll never catch me i'm fucking innocent yeah right i i don't get that from like any other of his films besides the royal tenant bombs you know and like watching all of his later films, like they're they're a pleasure to watch and they're fun and entertaining. But I feel like that's what they are at the end is entertaining, right? Where sure. like this one, if you met someone like like Dignan at the end of it, you would f- see you would like appreciate them for what they are, you know. Where you might have just passed them up before as some like, um, like harebrained, naive, like you know, <laughs> weirdo. <laughs> Sure. You know, um, but I think being able to appreciate like, you know, someone like that's uh, brightness, you know, and the darkness of the world around them. Um, that's pretty cool, in my opinion. Agreed. Yeah. Some people have tried to uh, sort of co-opt. Wes Anderson style to some degree. I don't know if you heard of uh, Roman Coppola. 
Um, uh, rings part of the Coppola family. Well, he did Charles Swan, which was very much in sort of that style, Wes Anderson style. And he has Bill Murray in it and Jason Schwartzman. Oh, we're both, uh, you know, exactly. So <laughs> it's definitely been, uh, people have tried to copy our, our guy here. So yeah. it's yeah. interesting. It's, you know, I, I think that's actually something that you can do with, uh, like style over substance directors. Like when you, when you say copy Fincher or copy Villeneuve, you would be, or copy Nolan, yeah. right. You would be like, how, <laughs> like most people, when they like talk about trying to quote unquote, copy Christopher Nolan, they just try to like use wide shots and make something that sounds like Hans Zimmer in the background. You know, it's like, sure. It's not really like copying his style, you know? Yeah. Um, Whereas, like, when you say copy Wes Anderson, copy Tarantino, there's a very easy way to do that, right? Because it's yeah. so visual that... Um, Which is another reason why young filmmakers are infatuated with these guys. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. But, um, no, I think... Uh, I, I think it's almost like that rawness that I want from Wes Anderson all the time when I'm watching his other movies. Is I'm just, like, waiting for him to, like, bear his soul somewhere. You know, and he never does. He he always has this like ten inch wall of style, you know, mm-hmm. um, between him and his audience, and like it, it's so much different from like when you look at someone like Villeneuve, Nolan, Fincher, where they like, you know, they, they there's moments in those films where they're just like raw, right up against the audience, like no filter whatsoever, you know, and it's like those are the moments that really move you. You know, and that's I think that's why, like, style stylistic directors are generally uh, comedic comedic, um, even if they're doing a genre, they they have kind of a comedic, uh, a comedic flair to their film. And I think mm. I think comedy essentially like when, when you're going for an insight, comedy acts as like this, uh, this mask that you can wear um, as the creator. Right. Um, yeah. And you always hear about how comedy is harder to make. And I actually um, agree with that. Right. Um, I I think comedy requires a lot um, larger understanding of craftsmanship. But at the same time, I think um, comedy has this element of cowardice in it where like you don't you don't stand right next to your uh, right next to your insight. You know, yeah, and, no, I completely and bear agree. your soul, you know, like <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. Um it's easier to chide something than it is to try to, you know, do something great in a sense. Right, with sincerity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh there's a great historical antidote that I like to think of when I think of comedy, and it's you know, when Julius Caesar took power in Rome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is my antidote. Uh, anecdote. The, yeah, anecdote, yeah. sorry. Um he you know, he banned all the comedians, which obviously is not great. Yeah. But why? Because comedy gets in the way of doing something that's great. So you can easily, you can tear down anything that's great or obfuscate, you know, right. and sort of hide behind the mask of comedy. Right. And sort of like a weapon that can be used for anything. Um, and so it's interesting when you apply that to art, when you think about it. And I very much agree with what you're saying. It's like a lot harder to try to put your heart and soul into something. And really prove that and make a well, I think representation it's, of I it. I think it's a lot more, uh, yeah, it, it depends. On, it's harder in one way, right? I feel like co- comedy is harder, like, 
in a form way. Sure. Right? And I mean, in the sense that it's, it's more, uh, it's scary. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like it's, you have to be very vulnerable, but with comedy, it's not that way. It's easier to be liked by people. Yeah. Um, by making jokes than it is to make a sort of impassioned argument or impassioned right. piece of art. Um, one's more difficult. The other one's them. more trying. Yeah. That's, yeah. Drama's so, trying. Comedy is difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think about that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I cannot, I mean, that's, that's the thing about drama is like, I've seen so many bad genre dramas, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and, and like, you can tell though that their heart and souls in it, or you can tell when it's not, and it's very clear. And I think it's because there's no, uh, you know, nothing to hide behind. Yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, no, Wes Anderson's Wes Anderson's a very interesting director because he's so, he is so masterful. And like, even though we're kind of, I'd say that we're like, both of us are very much about, you know, insight and substance. So of course we're going to fall more into drama and we're going to be a little bit more disparaging of directors that are um, style over substance, you know, yeah. because, because it truly is uh, at that point more for entertainment. Um, But it, like, you can't deny um, Wes Anderson's mastery over film. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, I completely agree with you. Like, his films, whatever you want to say, they're really entertaining to watch. They're really entertaining to watch and they're so unique. And they're you know so I mean? well put together. Yeah. You know, um, like w- when I look at his films, um, especially his earlier ones, there's nothing I would change about them. Right. Even mm-hmm. with his older, with his, uh, sorry, his newer ones, like based on the stylistic choice that he made, there's nothing I would change about them. Yeah. You know, Um <laughs> like the only the only thing i would say is like start from the ground up which is like not something anyone would want to hear um or would it would if someone brought you into like to look at their film and to give them criticism it also isn't a productive uh criticism exactly (laughs) you know because they've already shot everything and you know like it's like what i would want to see out of wes anderson's next film is i would see him I would like to see him like abandon the style that he's created for so long. Right. Well, let's transition Um, then to Wes Anderson's next film, which is the French dispatch. It was supposed to come out this year. Oh, really? Okay. I actually didn't even heard about this. Well, I've seen the trailer and it is 100% Wes Anderson. (laughs) So he's doing it again. Uh, It's about uh, the mid 1900s, a French, newspaper publication sure uh in three stories that they're going on about the three best stories of the year okay so and it has his greats in there has bill murray it has benicio del toro francis mcdormand adrian brody tilda swinton owen wilson it has so many great people Um, yeah that's another great thing about uh west that we haven't really mentioned yet is his ensembles he puts together incredible ensembles but i feel like uh Regardless of what we're saying, my my guess is that Wes Anderson is going to do Wes Anderson yep. for his entire life. I would put money on that, frankly. <laughs> so, yeah. Which will be fun to watch. I'm definitely going to watch the movies as they come out because I know what I'm getting and I know I like watching it. Yeah. Uh, but it, you, I get what you're saying. It would be interesting to see Wes Anderson do something different. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, just because he keeps the visual style doesn't necessarily mean that, like, you know, 
he's doing the same thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that like with the next one, it'll be, I'm, well, I'm hoping it'll be different or at least like he'll make something new that he, um, and actually to, to kind of go off of what you were saying about how, about what you were saying earlier, where like every time they level up their, uh, crack, their, their style, like they make an amazing film with sure. style directors. Like, I think, I think that a lot of the times they level up their style because they need something new for what they're getting into. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I was just about to bring up Tarantino again. Right. Right. His, and I'm like, there's an example of a guy who's done it, but it has had a change in his style. Right. You know, whereas with Wes Anderson, I see it as a, a straight line almost or an incline. He's sort of just kept doing the same thing, but getting better and better and better at it. Whereas with someone like Tarantino, I actually do see adjustments and changes Right, in right. Style. Well, and and you know, I would, so. you know, if this, I don't know, like I, I don't know how. I I guess like I guess I don't know how Wes Anderson would come at something that his style couldn't encompass, right? Like that's what would be interesting to see, you know? Yeah, but like, I wonder if we will be able to. Yeah, when when I think about directors, like. Imagine if he had to take on an IP that w- wasn't written by him, right? And I wonder if he writes his own stuff all the time because he intentionally oh, avoids. What's you that? Should do Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that would be so good. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying is like a lot of people would like think of Wes Anderson doing the Lord of the Rings and be like, "Wow, that would be really bad," right? And like that's what I'm saying is like I feel like that is that is what. Um, that that's the problem with style directors is like you you immediately but imagine see, Lord of the Rings <laughs> by in Wes Anderson style, well, right right. Imagine well, it would that. be funny, right? But like, could, could he could he pull off Lord of the Rings in a sincere fashion, right? And no, I think I think he's sticking to the style, buddy. Well, that's what I mean, right? Is that like he? That's why I think he writes everything he directs, right? Because as the writer, you can eliminate anything that doesn't agree with your style, right? Yeah. Um, and I think I think the upsetting part of that is that it, it's it's um, a little bit of like selling a lie, right? Um, which is why I like Bottle Rocket and the Royal Tenenbaum so much because the insight at the end is true, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the style fit for those films, and like when you get into his later films, like the in- insight for those films could only be true because the criminals were cartoony. And the police were cartoony and the world was cartoony. So they could evade them by doing something cartoony. Right. Yeah. Um, Or, or just like something cartoony happened that allowed for us to get over one major discrepancy in his worldview for that film. Right. Um, And like, that's why I I kind of like, we, we talked about um, what was it? Tarantino might, Tarantino doing Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think like if Tarantino brought his style to Star Trek, it would be bad. Right. Like if he just copy pasted the Tarantino style to Star Trek, it wouldn't be a good movie. Right. I think it, it would probably hit like cult audiences and people that are fans of Tarantino, but like Star Trek fans that came in would probably be upset. Yeah. Star Trek fans would probably be upset. That's, right. That's for sure. Um, and I think when you talk about like Wes Anderson doing Lord of the Rings or something, right? Like Wes Anderson fel- fans would love it. 
Right. But the majority of the world would be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Right. I mean, I get what you're saying. No, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, but it would be interesting. But that's why I'm thinking like it, it would be it would be interesting to try to see them do some other IP and leave their ego at the doorstep. Right. Um, yeah. Because I, I do think that they're entirely capable of doing that. Like they've shown in such incredible mastery over film, both of them. Right? Well, do you think Anderson has an ego? I, he doesn't strike me as someone who has an ego just because he sticks to his style. I don't think that's an ego issue necessarily. Like I know I get that with Tarantino, but. Um, well, I mean, the way that I see um, ego as a filmmaker is like essentially the style being your voice dominating the substance. Really? That's the yeah. definition of having an ego as a filmmaker is your style? No, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, like you, right? You <laughs> are dominating. So. You are oh, okay. dominating the substance. Right. So okay. like that's why when you look at these other things that like, you know, like Wes Anderson's style, when you think of Wes Anderson, right, you immediately think of his style. Right. And the reason why you feel like a Wes Anderson Lord of the Rings wouldn't be good is because you immediately just picture you know, well, um, I think it would be good though. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I but, get what you're saying though. I um, think it'd be interesting to watch. Um, I, I see what you're saying. I don't think, uh, an over commitment to your style necessarily means you have an ego. There might be a correlation there. Um, but I don't think Wes Anderson is getting in the way. Like we said, his films are good. We might have an issue, but like you just said, like there's nothing you could do, but say, just start over. Like it's just the film is the film is essentially the perfect version of what it is, you know, to start over, you would have to do something else entirely. And that's why we're saying it'd be interesting if he did something else entirely, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, Wes Anderson does not strike me as a person who is making films to glorify himself or to intellectually masturbate or something like that. I, that's not necessarily what ego means though. Right. That would be more like narcissism. Um, yeah, but I think that would be in most people's minds, a much closer meaning to what ego is than their style getting in the way of their film. Isn't ego just like your sense of yourself? Sure. Sure. Um, so like, I, I think what you're getting at is like, obviously Tarantino is a massive narcissist, right? Um, so he would view himself as being more important than whatever um, subject he's doing. But like when I, when I'm talking about like your ego going into a film, I'm specifically talking about like, you know, if I, for example, if someone gave me like uh, Harry Potter or something, right? Yeah. Like if I was like, Oh, I'm going to make a Nicholas Galligan film here. Right. So I'm going to attribute everything that I do in film to this film. Right. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what I mean is like if Wes Anderson came in to Lord of the Rings and was like, I'm going to make a Wes Anderson film, not I get I'm what going you're to saying. Lord of the Rings. Right. I get what you're saying. But there are some IPs, take Pride and Prejudice, for example, that have been adapted from here to back, from hell to back. Yeah. And they have had original takes on the story because you don't need to be so worried about the fans at that point because they have two to three selections of faithful adaptations at that at that moment. Yeah, I think it's it helps the that they were Shakespeare books first, and then like, you well, know, it helps with Shakespeare as well. You know, like how yeah. many original takes have we had on Shakespeare a lot, so people can do original things. So I think having the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings in our specific example, yeah, I guess would Lord of the Rings give Wes Anderson the freedom. Yeah, to, I get what you're saying. That can definitely be an aspect of ego, but. 
I think in this, I don't just don't see it with Wes Anderson. He does not strike me as a guy. Uh, so you think ego. he'd make like an epic Lord of the Rings where like you wouldn't really be able to tell that it was like a Wes Anderson film? No, I'm saying like I would like to see Lord of the Rings <laughs> as Wes Anderson. <laughs> I think that'd be so cool. Could you imagine uh, take the fantasy world of Tolkien and then put a layer of Wes Anderson on top of it? You know what I mean? I like it would not be... be at all like Peter Jackson's, but it would be interesting. I'm just saying that I would get excited to see it. I'm not saying that it'd be good or that people would like it. I think it might be good, though. And I think that's my point is it could be good. I don't know. I don't think like. I don't think Wes Anderson's the Hobbit style. done is like Wes Anderson. You know what I mean? It almost fits. It almost fits. I feel like maybe The it. Hobbit fits. Maybe. Yeah. I really don't feel like Lord of the Rings fits just because like you do a lot of following of characters that are not like naive or fuck ups. You know, I mean, there are a couple sure. of those characters. And I think like if you literally only did the Hobbit's journey of Lord of the Rings, it could work in Wes Anderson's current style, you know, of like kind of making this cartoony thing that um, that is a little mundane in the end, you know, but like when you're following like fucking Legolas and Aragorn through the like massive battles that they're going through, like I just like I think Wes Anderson might that. fall on his face. Yeah, the epic <laughs> battles might be an issue. I definitely agree with that. But um, I'm just saying, you know, uh, I believe The Hobbit or Was It Lord of the Rings, they were done as cartoons first, you know? But yeah. Um, you know what? I'm just thinking I'm really it would be enjoying, My though. main point is that I just don't think he has an ego. Uh, I don't know. Like I don't, in the sense of what I, we would use it to explain a bad thing. I really. You know, everyone has an ego in the psychological sense. Yeah. Well, I think, I think like, uh, I think any, but I think any director whose style is so predominant in their films most likely has a pretty big ego i mean like i mean honestly even think about his his like his like attention to insignificant details right you don't do that if you have like a healthy relationship with your ego i don't know i'd see this is where i'm pushing back i just don't see at all how you have a correlation or more than a correlation a relationship between taking care of the details in your film and having an ego if anything it's pretty cool that how detailed he is it's just that his style is overwhelming um, uh, it's omnipresent. Hold on. Can you, can you explain that again? I just want to, well, I, sure. I'm just saying that you, you're sort of pointing out that there's a relationship now between being detailed and having an ego in, in a negative sense. Uh, I just don't see how that, how that correlates or has a relationship with so being, what having I'm talking an ego about in a negative way. Isn't about like detail as a whole. I'm saying that he's, he's kind of like undiscerning whether like the thing is important or not especially in his later films, right? Where like when you look at someone like Fincher, he, he puts a crazy amount of thought into detail, but you see a very distinct uh, um, differentiation between where, like what things he's putting all of his time into. Right. And like with things that are more important, he puts more time into it. He like gets closer up to it with the camera. Right. And, but why, why my issue is not so much with whether or not, Fincher's doing it is better but why is that related to having an ego in a negative way i'm just saying it's a clue that points towards that right where like when you when you see someone that needs to control every single aspect of their film right um not not even just like check off on it but to like control it like wes anderson does and it create it ends up creating a style that's like so rigid and like kind of even later in their career starts to undermine the substance behind their stories. Right. 
like I, I feel like that is a clear um symptom of like kind of letting your ego rule your film i don't know if it's a symptom of ego i'm not necessarily disagreeing with you that there's some negative side effects of what he's doing well and, and i, I don't, I don't mean narcissism a, right because I, I i still feel like that's what you're talking about right where like, well i'm just saying ego yourself. in a negative way yeah um well you know what I, I think i think you've explained yourself pretty well and i think uh people will make up their own minds about that. I agree with you that there's a negative side effect of the things that he's doing. I just don't know if I correlate that with like, if I was calling someone egotistic or something, I would not think Wes Anderson or the way he makes his films. I would think, you know, frankly, Tarantino, uh, even though he makes great films still, you know what I mean? Um, I think it has a lot more to do with your interpersonal relationships. Uh, But anyways, Well, I just, I would think about the way that Tarantino is directing on set. Like when I imagine Wes Anderson directing on set, when I've seen him directing on set, he seems like a very calm and positive person. And it seems like people are on board with what he wants to do. And it seems like he does take creative input. Um, Who, Tarantino? No, Wes Anderson. Oh, okay. So he just doesn't strike me. He doesn't strike me that way. And when I watch his films, even his later films, I don't think, oh, maybe the reason why he doesn't have that, you know, cathartic oomph with a great message with great content, uh, you know, beneath the style, uh, is because he has an ego that just doesn't point up to me. I think you were far more on the, on the, on the head of this, on the target of this with a bullseye when you were saying more that the, it was his overcommitment to the style that was getting in a way, but well, what do you think causes the, way, the overcommitment to exactly, the style? exactly. Well, that's what I was about to say. I was like, but now you're saying that that's caused by ego. And I just don't know. I just don't know, man. Um, well, I think maybe you're like the way that you're looking at ego might be a little too narrow, right? Where it's becoming like where, where you, how you talked about how it's like really only in your interpersonal relationships with the people you're working with, which like I think, yes, that can be the case. But like I think ego really affects everything that you do. Right. So well, if, if it was in the interpersonal relationships, it would affect the film. Oh, of course. Know? Of course. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not in interpersonal relationships. I'm saying that your ego literally affects literally everything that you do, you know, and your ego has a relationship with literally everything you do, including the style of your film. Right. And like, um, I think as a writer, that's usually what you're battling, right, is your own ego in order to present an objective, you know, um, an objective story. Um, but like when you kind of have a, um, inaccurate sense of ego, whether it's like, you know, you think less of yourself or more of yourself than you actually are. Right. It tends to manifest itself in like kind of, I would say, um, an overbearingness in certain aspects of your life. Right. And like, like you said, his style is overbearing. Right. So like, I would assume that it had something to do with ego. Unless he literally has someone back there being like, this is how we're doing it, you know, and it has nothing to do with him. But I, I doubt that very heavily. Sure. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just thinking you can make a creative mistakes or, or not, you know, level up, so to speak, creatively. Um, you know, it could be that that aren't they don't have to deal with ego. It could be know. that uh, he ha- he thinks less of himself than he should. 
Um, Maybe. I, I could see that where like he might be afraid that if he breaks his style at any point, like he'll be quote unquote exposed for the fraud that he is, which like, you know, would be would be a sense of ego that is, you know, lower than it should be because he's obviously Imposter syndrome. Yeah. Where like he's obviously a master, you know, and he obviously knows what the hell he's doing with a camera and a crew. And, you know, he can he can make brilliant films. But like if he was scared that he was an imposter, if he didn't deserve it, you know, he might he might cement his, himself into a style that doesn't fit into everything that he does. Well, I think we uh, covered that. I think uh, I got to chew on more on what you said about ego there and rethink about it over these next few days. But I think we covered the film, man. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I, I love this film so much. This is actually only my second watch, but uh, it's it was always a pleasure. It's very good. I enjoy Wes Anderson a lot. He's, uh, you, you know, he's, he's fresh. The films are fresh. You yeah. Know. He's very unique. Anyways, with that out of the way, I think we're pretty much done. Uh, we're going to be doing a bonus episode where we do our redux, our redo on Tenet. Now that we've yeah. rewatched it and had some more time to think about it and we can go into greater detail without the fresh emotions of having just seen it and without the great car engine sounds and so on. <laughs> yeah. And we get to, you know, we've gotten to mull it over a little bit more and we get to like, um, you know. I actually have some gripes with it now, actually. Interesting. Um, just a few. They're, they're, we'll they're pretty small. Them. But, um, but yeah. Well, we'll have to go over them. Also, that has nothing at all to deal with the fact that we've gained so many loose listeners. Hello, welcome. <laughs> uh, because of our initial tenant episode. So, yeah, we're not double dipping at all. That's definitely not the uh, incentive here. But um, yeah, we, we will anyways, always guys, do this where like if we have a first reaction video, um, and we feel like, you know, the movie's complex enough. Uh, we will uh, revisit it at some point and, you know, talk about it in greater detail and with more thought than we had with our first reaction. Yeah. I mean, we may revisit something for any reason, really. We are, yeah. We're thinking of doing The King at some point. Yeah. We still uh, got to, like, watch that, like, seven more times and break it apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, guys, uh, we should have some links in the description for you to check out and uh some social media links um because we got that all up and running now and feel free to subscribe yeah and enjoy uh whatever interview quaid finds from uh, wes anderson yeah, yeah i will find that after editing it so enjoy guys <laughs> all, right. all right see ya bye you and, I, you and i have talked about this a lot and and i think it was something at least my impression of of you is that you like when I made Kicking and Screaming, which is my first movie, which is the same year you made Bottle Rocket, and we didn't we didn't know each other then. But I, I feel like I look back at that movie, and I did a lot of things in that movie because I was told that was the way you do it, because uh, I'd never, I hadn't made, you know been to film school. I didn't do it sort of the same way. You know, you you and I in some ways came to it similarly in totally different areas. But I, you know, I did things like looping that I wouldn't have done. I did. The, the way we cut it, I let the editor cut it first, and then I went, and, and I really, it took me even a couple movies to kind of learn, you know, I, you don't have to actually do it this way. I, I was really Im impressed, at least it's my fantasy of you, you might be able to, uh, I'm sure you have examples that are, uh, where you did I things you wish you hadn't, but yeah, but that you, you knew immediately, no, 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 I'm not gonna do it like that. I wanna do it this way. Uh, 
Yes. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think I, uh, you mean during, during Bottle Rocket? During Bottle Rocket, yeah. yeah, during, uh, yeah well, that's the funny thing. I feel like I was never more confident in my life than when we made that film. Yeah. And never less confident than when we screened it. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time we screened it was, the, was, was part two of my life. Um, um, because up to that point, I really, my attitude was, just wait till they see this. Right. Um, and, um, and, I, and a lot of people were, you know, does this story hold together? Or, you know, is this, do people going to understand why these boys are acting like this? And I was like, I think they're going to understand. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, and, um, and then we screened it in, uh, at, in, you know, you've heard me tell this many times, I suppose. But, but maybe they relive it. Yeah. Yes. Um, and we screened it in Santa Monica at the AMC... 17 or something like that on the Third Street Promenade. For an audience. For an audience of, yeah. uh, of 400 people. And, um, and as the reels unspooled, you know, <laughs> as the, you know, during the... I watched... I was sitting in the back row with all the studio executives, everybody, and, um, and I began to see people leaving. And they, you know, they were leaving in groups... Um, people don't go to the bathroom in groups. Um, they're not coming back. Uh-huh. You know, they take their coats, and um, and it became you know really excruciating. Um, I, I, I went I, at a certain point. I left. I tried to be very discreet about it because I didn't want to add to the to the to the exodus feeling. But I also couldn't take it. And, um, and I watched, I went up to the projection booth and watched, and, and they just left all through the film, and, um, and it was really a, a miserable thing. Um, and, um, but I remember there was, a, there was a, we, afterwards we had the audience cards, you know, the reactions, and, you know, they just, you know, you get the S-U-C-K-D. <laughs> um, you know, that's the sort of... Um, thing you had um, and a lot of things where if favorite whatever none you right, know right. one after another uh, and um and but I remember that we were going through it you know and and uh and I we were kind of analyzing it everyone's feeling bad for me uh for, that I won't be able to do this with my life and um and and then I remember there's one, then I got one of these and it was like a, you know, outline of a dissertation. <laughs> this girl had uh, sat there a lot uh, longer than everybody else and she'd written a whole thing and she quoted things and she said this stuff and I was like, and I remember in the room I was like, this is our audience. only <laughs> <laughs> There was literally one positive <laughs> thing. Um, and... Um, and I didn't get the, you know, I was like, this, this, she's, she's, she's getting everything. Um, a few years later, several years, like six years later, um, I was at like a, some kind of uh, function. And uh, this girl, you know, some kind of film thing or it's a DGA thing or something. And this girl is afterwards and introduced herself to me and says, I was at your screening in Santa Monica. I was like, I know who you are. <laughs> I know exactly who you are. I, I, she was uncomfortable. She wasn't sure what I was talking about. No, 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 no. I know you. 